This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, the host of the channel today, and today we're going to be talking to Matt Tomlinson, who is the author of God is Samoan, Dialogues Between Culture and Theology in the Pacific. So, Matt, it is great to have you on the uh, podcast. I should let uh, listeners know that uh, we've known each other for quite some time. We're both uh, anthropologists of the Pacific. And I am actually on the board of the Pacific Island Monograph Series at the University of Hawaii Press. And um, that board uh, and the press published your book. So I don't think there's a terrible conflict of interest, but I, I do want to let people know that there is that connection in terms of transparency. So thank you very much for writing the book and thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Alex. Thank you twice. Yeah. So um, can you tell me, I think of you as uh, someone who's done ethnography of Fiji, and now this book has this wonderfully provocative title, God is Samoan. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how you got interested in this topic and how you began writing the book? So the beginning of the book is a really embarrassing story. So here it is. Um, it actually started with failed fieldwork. So I was in Fiji, in Suva, the capital city, back in 2008, 2009, and I proposed this really ambitious project where I was going to look at all these Christian institutions in the capital city. And what had happened was there had been a coup about two years before. Fiji has had four military coups since independence, or four coups, often backed by the military. And this was the fourth coup in 2006. So on there in 2008, 2009, and I proposed this really ambitious project where I wanted to work with all these different Christian institutions. And I could go into all the gory details, but it kind of turned out to be impossible. But what I didn't know was it, it really turned into a blessing in disguise because the one place I was able to spend a lot of time at, and I, I actually lived and based, based myself at in Suva, was the Pacific Theological College, which is this ecumenical academic college that gives bachelor's, master's, and even PhD uh, degrees in theology to Pacific Islanders who want to study theology from all over the Pacific. And I spent a lot of time there, and it was supposed to just be one field site of several, but because of circumstance, I spent most all of my time at PTC and found that the folks there were doing really interesting things, anthropologically speaking. So they were all theologians, but the specialty at PTC and in much of the South Pacific is a field of theology called contextual theology. 
And contextual theology essentially means you take personal experience, but also cultural context as the grounds on which you can engage the divine. So if you are, say, Fijian, uh, you have to understand God in Fijian terms, in the Fijian language, through Fijian stories. That's an expectation in contextual theology. So the theologians I was meeting kept talking about culture. And I thought, oh, I, I want to know more about how they're thinking about culture and how they how they bring it to bear on their work. So anthropologists often use culture as a concept. Um, sometimes we like it. Sometimes we, we want to leave it. People claim to have innovated past it. But I think it's often been noted that it's not as if this term is ours alone. I think uh, Trio is one of the people who's noted that this term gets used by lots of other people. So they sort of, these people, uh, I guess they're pastors and seminarians. Are, uh, are If those are the people who you're interviewing, you can let me know. And they, they were sort of, their, they had their own theory of culture. Is that, that what you're doing? Well, so it's like this. You're right. So anthropologists, we're, we're all over the map now on culture. So some people uh, say that we've theorized ourselves past it. Some people are resolutely sticking to trying to rethink it. I think most people just kind of leave it hovering in the background. But there are good people who have been talking about how culture theory has migrated outside of anthropology. I would also include Andy Orta and Ilana Gershon. So what these what these theologians were doing, and, and so I started at PTC, but then I decided to make it a bigger project and moved on to other sites in Samoa and New Zealand. They weren't really re-theorizing culture as such. In fact, they were drawing on fairly old-fashioned culture concepts, fairly structural functionalist and cognitivist, in which culture is something, it's a system of rules that you inherit. It's something that orients your life. And it's the kind of, of strict definition of culture that very few anthropologists would subscribe to anymore. But so there were two parts of this for me. I, I was interested simply in the fact that they kept talking about culture and said that culture was the grounds to talk about God and to encounter God and to understand God. So I found that ethnographically interesting. But the other thing they did, which really excited me theoretically, was they kept talking about dialogue. And this is also not unique to theology, not unique to anthropology. You know, all these calls for more dialogue in the world, dialogue as a proper method of engagement, dialogue as a solution to social problems, that absolutely runs through all this contextual theology. And so after a while, you know, you're starting fieldwork and you're excited but confused. After a while, it started to settle into place. And I realized that that was exactly the point of how they used culture. It was to try to motivate different dialogues. It was how they could dialogue with God, but it was how they could get other theologians to engage with dialogue, uh, engage in dialogue with them, uh, you know, Pacific and non-Pacific theologians. And there were other kinds of dialogues they would set up, like between reader and text. So in the end, this whole project and the book started with the question of how other people think about culture and then came into a question of the nature of dialogue and how do people think about dialogue and how do they set it up. And so it's really bringing together culture and dialogue. You know, that's, that's so great, Matt. I think one of the challenges that people have when they design research projects, especially like um, I know when I'm advising PhD students, 
the the projects can often be so amorphous. It's so hard to figure out what you're interested in, even though you're really interested in it, trying to just nail it down reflexively and say what's at the core of your project is so hard to do. And for you, you've just nailed it right there. There's culture and dialogue as two key parts. And the, t- the subtitle of your book is Dialogues Between Culture and Theology in the Pacific. It's it's just, uh, you. I, I love the clarity that you bring to the project in terms of knowing what you're doing. And, <laughs> and dialogue is not a new concept for you because you have a background in linguistic anthropology, correct? So you were probably already interested in dialogue. Yeah, very much so. And for me, the, the interesting project with dialogue, and I don't want to get very jargony because I know this is a friendly chat um, for a podcast, but for me, the crucial thing that scholars of dialogue need to think through is the relationship between dialogue and dialogism. Again, that sounds really jargony, but dialogue can just be this conversation, like the kind we're having now, where we go back and forth and take up each other's words. But by dialogism, I mean what Bakhtin was writing about and got anthropologists so excited in the 80s and 90s, which is this idea that every time you speak, your voice is shot through with the accents of other people. And what really interests me the most about thinking about dialogue is we have to see it both in the sense of a practical conversation, the way we do or don't respond to each other, but we also have to think of it in terms of others' influence on our words and the way we speak. And the thing that I gently would like to critique um, some some corners of linguistic anthropology um, is that they're really good with conversation analysis on the one hand, where they're really deep into the poetics of Bakhtinian dialogism on the other, but they don't bring them together often enough, and they don't often enough realize that many people have language ideologies that are very anti-Bakhtinian or very non-Bakhtinian. So do I have time to tell a very brief story uh, from Absolutely, the Absolutely, yeah. Go for oh, it. Okay. Don't, <laughs> don't be afraid to take us deeper. I'll, I'll ask any questions if it sounds like we're getting lost in the weeds. Ah, thank you. So yeah, so th- this was my this was the one of the breakthrough moments when things came together was when I was there in PTC, um, Pacific Theological College in Suva, Fiji, and it's early two thousand nine. And again, there had been a coup at the end of two thousand and six, and the leader of the coup, Varenge Bainimarama, was a military leader, and then he became he made himself the prime minister, and then later he was legitimately elected prime minister, but. At this period of time in early 2009, he was really antsy. He was very anxious. So he was doing a lot of things to sort of provoke his enemies and challenge his enemies. This was when the constitution was getting abrogated. and There was a lot of tough stuff going on at the time. So I'm here at the theological college and I'm hearing all these calls for dialogue and, you know, we need dialogue and dialogue is a solution. And then the the coup leader, uh, turned prime minister, Baini Marama, starts announcing that Fiji needs needs dialogues. It needs a, what was, I can't remember the term he used. I think it was just dialogue forums, but there was going to be a series of events that were couched as dialogues, dialogue forums. And he made one condition for these dialogue forums. And Alex, I'm going to turn the tables and ask a question of you. Can you guess what Baini Marama's condition for these dialogue forums was? Well, if, if it was me, there'd be kava. 
<laughs> Actually, you're you're dead on right. There must have been two conditions, right? No public event in Fiji without kava drinking. No, his his um his requirement was that you agree with everything he said, right? So that you can come to this dialogue forum where we'll exchange ideas if you happen to agree with me. Um, and so, as you can imagine, the the oppositional political parties were told, well, we're having a dialogue forum, but you can't come to it. And so, in a way, this was very sad. In a way, just a purely intellectual way, it was kind of hilarious that there's dialogue forums going on, but it, it just struck me very strongly that there was a hugely monologic ideology at work here. And I don't think I need to remind you of other political leaders who have this monologic sensibility when they speak, or an anti-Bakhtinian sensibility, which is to say they, they claim to speak with a purity of voice, as if what they say is sort of pure and true, and you can't contest it. And the only kind of way you can actually respond to it practically is to agree with it or to stay silent. So this is just to get back to this question of dialogism. One of the things that interests me most is this interaction with monologic language ideologies. Because on the one hand, people say that they want engagement and dialogue, but at the same time, a lot of times that's not really what they want. They don't. They don't want the, the pressures and complexities and vulnerabilities that come from engaging in dialogue. They want, they want something that is, that is more controlled and more empowering to them. I know you, your, your book prior to this was all called The Monologic Imagination, right? Yes, exactly. So that was fully wrapped up in the same kind of project. I mean, they're obviously very separate books because The Monologic Imagination is an edited collection where I was trying to have have us all help each other think through monologism. But yeah, no, that was very much part of the same project. And this was the challenge in this book, God is Samoan. I definitely don't want to be cynical about dialogue, but what you just said is really true. A lot of times when people call for more dialogue, it actually practically ends dialogue. It's a way of saying I've spoken and I've, I've, I've said what I need to say. And I think that there ought to be more vices, period, end of sentence. Let's go on to something else. So in the book, I try to make it clear. I mean, I, I'm not that cynical that dialogues do take place. And this book could never have taken shape without a million people talking to me, helping me, listening, answering my questions. So it's, um, I'm just trying to challenge, I guess, anthropologists and theologians to think about when we call for dialogue, what we actually think practically and how we actually do or don't expect other people's words to change what we do and what we say. Yeah, I think I was actually in a faculty meeting once uh, where uh, someone said reconciliation is the favorite activity of the victor. You know, sometimes claiming to listen to people is what you've decided to do when you've won, and um, this is just their chance to blow off some steam before we move on to doing things their way. Right. Yeah. No, I understand. So, you know, the title of the book is God is Samoan, which is, I think, for some people, kind of a shocking or engaging title. But I'm guessing you probably didn't actually interview God for the book. So this is a this is a multi-sided study of not just Fijian, but Samoan people. And then you said you also worked in New Zealand. Yeah. So in the end, I'd, I'd started this research without knowing I was starting it at Pacific Theological College in Suva back in 2008, 2009. 
But then years later, um, I moved from Monash University in Australia to the ANU, Australian National University, and I started this project explicitly devoted to anthropologically looking at contextual theology. And so at that point, I did about six months of research in Auckland at the University of Auckland's School of Theology. And then I spent about five months in Samoa um, with about nine weeks at the Kananafo Theological Seminary in American Samoa and a short but very productive four weeks at the Methodist Seminary in Independence Samoa, the Pula Theological College. So yes, I didn't actually meet God face to face and I'm not, um, I'm not really prone to mystical experiences, but for what it's worth, I will say this for the public record. I was trying to come up with the title, trying to come up with the title, um, coming up with terrible titles, you know, these weird academic convoluted titles that uh, would have been perfectly awful. And then it was just a flash. It just hit me right in my mind or however it hit me. It said, God is Samoan. I write, right, that's it. I got it. So I don't know if I came up with the title or not, but there it is. So um, your interlocutors uh, at these different institutions, um, it sounds like you're sort of learning from them and seeing how they sort of enact a theory of culture at the same time that you're trying to think through some of the same issues that they're talking about. Uh, I guess we should just say right up front, like uh, for people who don't know that that Christianity is central to the life of, I would say, most Pacific Island uh, peoples. So you were not necessarily acting as a missionary or or anything like that in, in trying to talk about God with people. But at the same time, you were probably coming from a more or less secular viewpoint. So how did that kind of field work work when you're coming to a place where the introduced religion is maybe more fervently held than you as, a, you know, sort of a, a generic kind of colonizer type guy might <laughs> hold it yourself. By the way, I'm going to have a t-shirt made up that says generic colonizer type guy, because that's a, no. um, look, I'm not an atheist, right? I do believe there must be a higher power, but I don't belong to a church. And the people I was working with, the theologians that I was engaging with are intellectuals and they're mainline theologians. So in Fiji, the Pacific Theological College has students from many church denominations, but they all tend to be fairly middle-of-the-road Protestants. And in Samoa, it was the Congregational Church in Independent Samoa. It was their seminary, Pula. And in, in Kananafo, in American Samoa, sorry, 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 Pula is Methodist and Kananafo is Congregationalist. So these are not fundamentalists. These are not fire breathers. These, uh, the folks here were not trying to convert me. They may well have been worried for me, but I would tell them that I believe in God, but I struggle with faith. And, you know, I, I uh, want to be there with them. I want to learn what they can share. And they seemed very comfortable with that. They responded um, very positively to me. I was never told that I was doing the wrong thing. Where it did come to a point was more the colonizer guy type of thing in Samoa. Uh, a question I got very often was anthropology, huh? So like Margaret Mead, um, that was more problematic. Anthropology was more problematic in Samoa than being um, not a member of a Christian church. 
Let he who has ears hear, as they say. (laughs) Yeah. So I had to make it really clear to folks. I said, look, um, I'm here for a very short time. I speak Fijian, but I don't speak Samoan. I was reading mostly nearly all English language texts. I mean, I've read Fijian language theology, but in Samoa, I'm working in English. And you can imagine folks were very anxious that I was going to write some tell-all book about what I thought Samoa was all about. And so that was the point that people were worried about. And I said, I said, um, I am an anthropologist, but I'm not here to write about the Fa Samoa, which is the Samoan way, which is the Samoan reflection on Samoan culture. I said, I'm not writing about that. What I'm most interested in is what theologians, Samoan theologians, say about Fa Samoa and say about God. And that made sense to people. So I may not be a very good religious subject, but I am very interested in religion. And I wanted to spend time talking to theologians. And they did seem okay with that. So you weren't really trying to study Samoan custom or culture. I'm obvious, I think one of the difficult things talking with Samoans as an anthropologist, I have them every year in my Pacific Islands culture class, is that we're not all Margaret Mead and that the discipline has changed quite a lot since then. But you were interested in studying Samoan culture because you're interested in how theologians talked about Samoan culture. So you were interested in their accounts of what Samoan culture is. So there's kind of a, a meta interest in how people thought about their culture. Maybe not you studying their culture. Well, exactly. So I would say that contextual theology is this kind of metacultural factory where it's, it's constantly saying, you know, what matters in culture? How does culture connect us to God? And the interesting thing to do anthropologically for me was not in any way to be any kind of arbiter about what counts as Samoan or not. That would be ludicrous. But I could see the kinds of topics that people focused on. So in one of the chapters of the book um, that we're talking about, it's called Weavers, Servants, and Prophets, and it covers these various themes that were coming up in the different churches. And the, the servants theme is really strong in Samoan theology. So for a lot of Samoan theologians, knowing what it means to be a tautua, which literally means a servant, um, is kind of the heart of what they want to do. And, and a lot of papers and dissertations get written on being a servant. And there's a Samoan phrase, the path to authority is through service. And that gets mentioned all the time. So no, I wasn't living in a village. I was living in a theological college or a seminary. Um, and I wasn't studying Fa Samoa. I was studying what Samoans said about Fa Samoa. But when I was listening to them, I could see certain themes coming up again and again. Alofa or love, fa'alo'alo or respect, uh, especially tautua or service. And for me, this does say something interesting about where Samoan intellectuals are thinking in terms of what they consider important about their society, what they see as especially threatened, and what they see as especially valuable. Uh, so I, I'll just tell people, I think someone's delivering something outside. If you hear some beeping, that's the truck backing up. I'm not sure if the mic is picking it up or not. So you were, so you were studying their perceptions of their culture and how they sort of reflexively thought about it. 
but at the same time, you were not really, I mean, when it, you were not really doing a bounded field site where you were just studying like a village or something like that. It's a very, um, it's, it's a very multi-sided, very contemporary, uh, project in many ways. It, it, it kind of reminded me at times of some of the stuff that people from the rice circle would do, where you treat your interlocutors as, as um, theoretically engaged with your project, not just ethnographic material for theory and sort of um, trying to rethink what it would mean to be in the field and this kind of stuff. And at, at the same time, the, um, the theology that you're reading and citing, although it talks a lot about what it means to be Samoan or Fijian or what, what Pacific Islands culture is, it's also extremely cosmopolitan. So you have theologians who are citing Derrida and yes. um, other, other theoretical questions. So it's also not, it, this is not sort of culture sealed in a bubble or something like that. No, no, not at all. So that, that's exactly right. So um, I, I try to position in the beginning of the book, I say, in a way it is multi-sided because I was really hanging out at these places. But in the end, it is a single site. It's conceptually this space of Pacific contextual theology, central Pacific contextual theology, in which everybody is thinking together about what culture and di- how culture and dialogue go together. And the, the funny thing, though, is these concrete sites, these actual spaces, they do kind of, uh, they do crisscross a lot. So, for example, when I was at Pula, the Methodist seminary in independent Samoa, the time I was there, of the 10 faculty members there, all 10 of them had studied for their master's degrees at Pacific Theological College in Suva. Now, it's not that way anymore. That was a unique moment of 100%. But there are these kind of cross-cutting ties where members from one organization will spend time at the other. They'll all go down to study um, a lot of the uh, really top theologians that have the most support from their churches. will study in places like Melbourne and Auckland And yeah, so uh, it's this combination of concrete physical sites that people do circulate among. But in the end, I do very much try not to pin this as a village ethnography or anything like that. It's really more of an exploration of this jointly constructed conceptual space in which people are talking about the same things. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It, the book sort of reminded me at certain points as uh, a sort of similar to the kind of book that you that you used to read back in the day. I'm sure they write it now on like contemporary French theory. You know, a professor from America who has a degree in philosophy, and there's one chapter on what Foucault has been up to, what Bourdieu has been up to, what Derrida has been up to for to to explain these things to readers uh, who don't have the time or energy or expertise and uh, a lot of times can digest stuff in French that has not been published. Those, those, those sort of um, secondary sources, uh, theoretical secondary sources, it kind of seemed to me like, like one of those books about, but about theology in the Pacific. 
Well, thank you. No, I think that's a good thing. And this is one reason I'm really proud that you, University of Hawaii Press is the publisher, because I think that can reach the kind of broad Pacific interested audience, as well as those more broadly interested in anthropology and theology. So um, I was really happy to be part of this Pacific Islands monograph series. Um, one of the reasons the book comes across that way, and it's, it's good and it's intentional, but it's because I came to the field of contextual theology so utterly ignorant about it that I had to do more reading than I'd ever done in my life. I did much more reading for this project than I ever did as a graduate student. I don't know if I should admit that. Sorry, former supervisors. Um, but I had to do so much ground up reading of basic stuff, dissertations, uh, you know, the, the run of the Pacific Journal of Theology, just to get up to speed to what the subjects were to begin with. So in a way, the ethnographically super cool stuff of hanging out and playing cricket at a Samoan seminary or just going to a really moving chapel service at Pacific Theological College or even hearing ghost stories at Kanana Fo. These were all fantastic and they were riveting and the great, the great stuff of fieldwork. But, but 99% of the intellectual activity that went into this book was just sitting there and reading and saying, what are people writing about and trying to put it all together. So I think that might explain why the book reads that way. Well, I think it is. I, mean, I think it is impressive how densely researched it is. As you mentioned, there's one chapter where you say, I just read all of a journal. <laughs> like, yeah. like all, all of it. It just that's that's quite a bit of work. Yeah, it's very fun to read, though. Very fun to read. I, this one of the things too I like is you know, you you mentioned as an example a sort of um, a, a sort of overview of French philosophy or what have you. But um, you know, Pacific philosophy is a real thing, as you know. I mean, you you know this working in Honolulu, and um, it's it's vibrant and it's there, and there are publications on it, but they don't often enough come to the attention of the wider world. And so this is one reason also I wanted to publish this book in a, in a place where maybe more people will get excited and more people will pick it up and say, hey, I had no idea that this stuff was going on out there. This is really exciting. There's a lot of, a lot of vibrant thought coming from the Pacific, but too often it kind of flies below the radar. And this gets back to that question of dialogue. When theologians in the Pacific speak, who's actually listening to them outside of the Pacific? And that's an open question, but it's a question that I think many of these theologians feel. Uh, they feel it very keenly and they ask it very directly. So one of my favorite theologians to read is a Tongan Methodist theologian who's at the, um, sorry, he's at St. John's College in Auckland, which is affiliated also with the University of Auckland. Uh, his name is Nasili Vakauta. Uh, brilliant scholar, brilliant biblical scholar, a uh, very fun guy. Um, and he he puts the question very directly, how can Tongan theology change the world? So uh, I learned a lot in my conversations with him just about how to think about dialogue and what does it mean to be a Tongan theologian who says, I have to position myself as a Tongan theologian to make my argument, but my argument should be able to reshape the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a it's a great example of the Pacific speaking to the broader world, and um, and your work is really interesting for the way that it it amplifies that signal. There's tons of people all over the world who think and do amazing things, and most people never hear about it just because you know we all have so much time and it's hard to get attention. 
And I guess part of what anthropology has always done is, is said, Hey, look at what these people are doing. It's, it's amazing. And, um, I, I guess in that sense, maybe your book is, is pretty traditionally anthropological. Yeah, I'd like to think so. It's not traditionally ethnographic, but I think it is, yeah, in that vein, it is traditionally anthropological. Yeah, the impulse. Um, At the same time, you know, there are some ironies in terms of the theologians that you discuss. Um, Many of these people seem a little bit ambivalent about their identity as Tongans or Samoans or or Fijians, and um, they hold up uh, because they've studied abroad or they're, they're not of the proper rank to, to make programmatic statements about who should do what. Um, and many also seem to uh, emphasize dialogue, even though they might come from traditions where dialogue is not standard. You, you mentioned one of, the, one of these practices already with the coup. So it's not as if, it's not as if this is sort of a Pacific culture and in a, unironic sense or in a unambivalent or unconflicted or, or pure sense as well. No, you're absolutely right. There's really deep ambiguities at work here. And there's this great, I would say, tension of language ideologies in the Central Pacific, which is on the one hand, there's this valued model of Talanoa. Talanoa is the word uh, with minor variations in Fijian, Tongan, and Samoan languages which basically means conversation, generally means more relaxed conversation. Uh, there's different shadings and nuances, but essentially it, it means dialogue. It essentially means conversation of a dialogic sort. So Talanoa is a very well-known model because it's often held up as an example of the Pacific way. How do people in the Pacific solve problems? Through Talanoa. We talk about it. Um, at the same time, there are very strong monologic language ideologies in Pacific societies, especially associated with the talk of chiefs and with uh, discourse in church. So a chief um, in a place like Samoa or Fiji or Tonga, when they're speaking, uh, you're not supposed to be chatting. You're not supposed to talk back. You're supposed to stay silent and not disagree. And they may speak uh, in a low volume and you're you have to pay attention to listen to them. They may speak at great length. And the point is they have the floor and no one else does. And that's the expectation. You don't really talk back to a chief. Of course, there's variations on all this. There are, chiefs can very much be brought into dialogic situations. But there is this model of chiefly speech as almost unidirectional speech and speech that everyone else needs to be silent for. And this goes just as strongly for church ministers' speech. Now, again, I'm not talking about Pentecostals. I'm not talking about people jumping up and down and dancing in the aisles. Fijian Methodist sermons, the preacher can get very loud. He can shout, uh, he can yell, but the audience generally is going to be very constrained in its feedback. It's generally not going to say anything in a Fijian Methodist service, except maybe vinaka, vinaka, which means good, good, thanks. Um, The minister in a place like Fiji or Samoa or Tonga, is really held to be the representative of God. And you don't interrupt God. And you don't tell God that God is wrong. So, of course, there's variations. Uh, ministers can get poked fun of, like anybody in any, any situation can get poked fun of. 
But in public performances, again, there's a very strong monologic ideal that this person is speaking for God. And so you let them speak and you accept it. And so, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little deep into the details here, but the point is to draw back that there is this hugely ambiguous uh, relationship, I think, between valorizing talanoa, conversation, dialogue, and saying this is the Pacific way. It is the Pacific way to really talk with each other and resolve problems and conflicts through dialogue versus the model of social authority that says, when you really need something important done, you let the top ranked person speak it and make it happen. Yeah. Well, maybe I should join you in the weeds a little bit. You know, you mentioned that it is possible to make fun of people uh, in these kinds of situations. And um, one of the sort of great Pacific thinkers, Apeli Ha'ofa, was famous for being a, a trickster and famous for being irreverent. And uh, I was talking to uh, Margaret Jolly, uh, someone who knew him, uh, a professor of, uh, of Pacific Studies, who many people listening to this podcast might know. And she said that she always thought that that Apeli was torn or somehow the 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 trickster side of him was deeply connected to the prophetic side of him, that the ability to poke fun at people was deeply tied to his ability to present a new view of the world and insist that people should move, move towards it. So maybe this, maybe there's something about um, a culture of authority where subversion is, is going to be naturally part of it. And I mean, maybe that's natural because cultures always contain multiple conflicting trends. A lot of times cultures are organized around arguments between values and ideals, not, not coherent sets of ideals. Yeah, no, that's a very fair point. And how often in, in his satire, he makes fun of church ministers too, of course. And there's a really fun example I discuss in the book. In, um, so, so the first model of Pacific contextual theology that gets held up as a model, saying we Pacific Islanders need to have our own theology, as it were, is something called coconut theology. And it's associated with a Tongan theologian and church leader named Sione Amanaki Havea. And he didn't write a lot, but he wrote a little bit. So you can cite, I do cite the couple things he, he wrote on it. But I think mostly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, he went to conferences, he went to workshops, he led church services, he spoke at events. And I think through his conversations and addresses, he built up mostly this model of coconut theology. And by coconut theology, it was essentially, um, it was, it was essentially a Christological metaphor saying that the coconut is like Christ. Um, I won't go into all the details, it's described in the book. But he was saying the coconut is uniquely, well, it's not uniquely of the Pacific, but it's obviously found across the Pacific. Um, the coconut sustains us. Uh, like the body and blood of Christ in communion, the coconut contains all of the elements within itself, um, like Christ's body. Um, he goes on and makes other parallels. Anyway, the point is, Sione Amanaki Havea said to Pacific Islanders in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, let's develop coconut theology. And this got people very excited because it was a term, it was a metaphor, it was a model that got people excited to say, right, we can develop our own local Pacific grassroots theology. So, so far, this sounds very um, earnest and uh, reverential in a way, but earnest at the same time. 
And Amenaki Havea's son, who's also called Sione, but spelled with a J, who is one of the most brilliant uh, Pacific theologians, and he, he writes very actively, he's very widely published. He points out that, that his father, Amenaki Havea, was, was being a little bit cheeky here too. Uh, I hope I don't offend anybody here, but he was making a little bit of a joke because the coconut gets held up as this uh, sort of ethnic metaphor for a person who's brown on the outside, but really white on the inside. And that's the question. If you are you know, a Pacific Islander who's of a particular ethnic heritage, but you're doing you know, university studies for theology, are you really white on the inside? And this wasn't meant to be offensive. So, so Sione Avea, the, the son, said, yeah, my, my father knew this model had this meaning and he thought it was funny. Uh, I, I explain it better in the book. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not explaining it well now. But that, that same subversion that you were talking about, and Margaret Jolly mentions in the work of Apelli Haofa, there's kind of a little bit of a subversive joke buried in the foundational model of contextual theology in the Pacific, which is coconut theology. Yeah. I think that that subtlety and that layers and layers of meaning is one of the great things about uh, so much Pacific, uh, especially by Pacific, I'm thinking of like Polynesian or maybe Austronesian um, uh, culture and, and text. It's something as someone who works in Papua New Guinea in a non-Austronesian speaking region that I'm often uh, in awe of uh, the layers and layers that you can find. Yeah. And I, you know, it's hard to make broad brush comparisons, but when I was thinking about the work I read from Fiji, the work I read from Samoa, and the work I read from Tonga, um, it struck me, again, I, I don't want to cause offense, this is just a casual reflection for, for thinking aloud on a podcast, but it seemed that some of the Tongan authors were just brilliant virtuosos of language, which is not to, the Samoan authors were great, the Fijian authors were great, but the Tongan authors had this amazing flair for language and loved playing with language, and loved playing with language to try to get at deeper theological truths. Mm. So maybe we could pull back a little bit, and could you situate this in some of the anthropological literature? I, I know there was this thing called the anthropology of Christianity that happened. I think of that as maybe a an early 2000s thing, and now there's this thing called theological anthropology or anthropology and theology. Where does your work sit in sort of those literatures? Yeah, it's part of both. I wouldn't put the anthropology of Christianity in the past tense. It's true. It, got, it was seen most vibrantly in the mid-2000s, especially with the work of Joel Robbins and then Fenella Cannell and her edited volume called The Anthropology of Christianity really launched things off. And then Joel Robbins started a book series at the University of California Press called The Anthropology of Christianity, in which uh, 20-something titles have been published. So I think my work is part of that. It, it always has been. But the, um, the theology thing is a bit different, I think, because there is a bit of a difference, I think. So when the anthropology of Christianity got started, partly, I, I feel I'm not going to do justice to all the things Joel Robbins and, and Fenella Cannell were saying at the beginning. So I'm going to simplify, I'm going to simplify radically and say that part of the intervention there was just ethnographic, was just to say, as you noted earlier, in places like the Pacific, but in many parts of the world, Christianity is so thoroughly a part 
of everyday social life and politics and kinship relations. Christianity is so interwoven, and, and in, a, in a Pacific village, I mean, so deeply interwoven with everyday life that it's, it's astonishing for how long anthropologists tended to bracket off Christianity and say, well, we're not interested in studying that. So to some extent, the anthropology of Christianity was simply an ethnographic corrective, but it did, of course, want to pose bigger theoretical questions. And so some of the best known are things like the relationship between rupture and continuity. That's Joel Robbins again, um, the nature of personhood. And then there have been markedly Christian anthropologists, I mean, devout, faithful Christian anthropologists, who have also tried to push back at secular models of anthropology and have sort of said, uh, it's all very well and good to take Christianity seriously, but if you're not really Christian, you're always going to miss something because what you will lack is a kind of shared commitment with your interlocutors, a, a, a commitment that goes beyond a purely intellectual commitment. And so Brian Howell, for example, has made that case really well. So theologically engaged anthropology has gone in various directions. Some some avowedly devout, I mean, faithful Christian anthropologists have tried to do more by saying, uh, we're not just a standpoint, we're not just a perspective, we're bringing something deeper to anthropology. Others who insist on saying, well, no, you, you don't have to be Christian to do Christian anthropology, including folks like Joel again and Matthew Engelke, um, have their own reasons for engaging with theology. So after sort of starting the, the movement of work in the anthropology of Christianity, Joel Robbins has been calling more recently for what he calls the anthropology of the good. And this fully flows out of the anthropology of Christianity because it's, again, I think, ethnographic at heart. It's an attempt to revive culture theory by saying, uh, I'm sorry, I'm probably getting too deep in the weeds again here, but an anthropology of the good is an attempt to recuperate the idea of difference and to say we can talk about the other or otherness um, in a way that's not a dirty word. And, and for some anthropologists, this is not controversial at all. Uh, but for those of us who were in school in the 80s and 90s, we do recognize this turn to distrusting the culture concept and seeing representation in some cases as forms of violence and then the appeal to understanding trauma and suffering as a human universal, that was a very important historical moment. But if we get too suspicious of difference and too wary of talking about other people as other people, then in a way we're doing a sort of reverse disrespect of not taking their difference seriously and not allowing them to say how they see themselves differing from us. So in the end, I think that's what Robbins is getting at with an anthropology of the good. And that's also what I'm trying to do in this book, is to say, I think that Pacific philosophy and theology is deeply worthy of respect and attention and should be read outside of the Pacific. And the, the way that these theologians got to this topic was by thinking about culture. And what I got from them was new ways of thinking about dialogue. That's great. That is that is uh, impressive. It's a great explanation of that literature, and it's also a great explanation about where you're coming from and um, where you're going and how we could think about the discipline. So thanks, Matt, for that. That's 
that's that's really impressive. Um, I I should tell our listeners, uh, Matt is in Oslo and Norway, and I'm in Honolulu. And I, 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 so we had to arrange this because we're 12 hours apart for an 8 a.m. recording. And I can hear my children starting to make noise. So Matt, I think I might have to let you go soon. But before I do, you know, you got this project in the bag. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is that you're going to be working on next? Yeah. So thank you. I should say my kids are getting ready to go to bed. Um, yeah. So I love this project. And I'm really proud of the book. But one of the things about it was because I pushed myself to engage in this wider conceptual space. When I came back, I, I was in Canberra, Australia at the time when I, when I was finishing that field work. And I really felt like I wanted to do a very local project in Canberra so I could stay with my family. And I kind of wanted an English language project at that point just because I, I pay so much attention to language and I wanted to look at a ritual setting, language and ritual, which has always been a huge interest of mine. Um, but I wanted to do it in Canberra. And I didn't know where to go with the Christian churches. And I felt like I just had a this beautiful and very sort of complete moment with studying Christianity in the Pacific for many years. So I turned to a completely new church group or a new religious group, which is spiritualism. As spiritualists, you may know, are people who speak with the dead. There are people who hold seances to speak with your late uh, loved ones, your late grandparents, your, you know, your, your deceased friends. And, you know, it's one of those things that has this image of a very Victorian 19th century ooga booga kind of thing where, you know, the Ouija board or sitting around a table at a seance. And I was kind of surprised in Canberra and in Australia, but also in many parts of America and in the UK. Spiritualism is really alive and really well. I mean, you see like the, the psychic uh, John Edward on TV, he, what he does is spiritualism, but groups meet like this for regular Sunday services in many parts of the world, including Canberra. So I started hanging out at spiritualist services because I wanted to see how they used language to contact the dead as they saw it. And so again, this is coming back to monologue and dialogue. I don't think we have time for a long explanation, but that's what I'm working on now. How do you build dialogues between dead people and living audiences? Well, that sounds fascinating. And I look forward to hearing more about that project in the future. So, uh, Matt, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alex.